Hey, everybody. Just wanted to let you know that we have been a little negligent on the TV you grew up with show, and we do plan on relaunching it this fall. And in the interim, I'm going to put out a couple of podcasts that we have done over the last few months. I really love this show and uh, want to take another crack at it. So stay tuned for more exciting episodes. But for now, here's an interview we recorded back in the spring. I apologize to our guests for the lateness in getting this out, but uh, I think that you will enjoy it. This one's about TV finales. You've tuned in to TV You Grew Up With, where we interview the people who created the greatest TV shows ever made. Here's your host, Jim Harrell. Welcome to TV You Grew Up With. I am Jim Harrell, and so glad to be with you. And I'm really looking forward to today's show because this is really just such a neat subject. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, a new book. It's called TV Finales, FAQ, all that's left to know about the endings of your favorite TV shows. And we have the two co-authors on the line, Stephen Tropiano and Holly Van Buren. Stephen is the author of Sariant Live FAQ. The Primetime Closet, A History of Gays and Lesbians on Television, and books on the film musicals Grease and Cabaret for Limelight Edition's Music on Film series. He is also the director of the Ithaca College Los Angeles program, where he teaches courses in film and TV theory and criticism. He lives in L.A. Holly Van Buren earned her master's in critical studies of film and television at the University of Southern California and teaches film studies at Wagner College. She has collaborated with Stephen as a researcher for several of his books for Hal Leonard, including Obscene, Indecent, Immoral, and Offensive, 100-plus Years of Censored, Banned, and Controversial Films, Saturday Night Live FAQ, and Cabaret for the Music on Film series. She lives in Staten Island. Holly, Stephen, welcome to the program today. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Now, obviously, with your background, you are well-steeped in television history, and I bet, like me, there's a little bit of TV nerd in in both of you. I don't mean that. I only mean that in a loving way. But why did you decide to do this book? I think um, the reason we um, decided to do it was there was sort of a period of time where all these TV shows that we had been watching all ended, and it seemed that there was a lot more media attention that was being given to the endings of shows. And so we thought it might be a kind of need to do some research and maybe to take kind of a critical look at how uh, TV shows um, have ended over the years. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, you keep seeing these lists pop up all over the place. You know, the top 10 best endings, top 10 most disappointing endings. And it just seemed like TV, other TV nerds like us as well you know, uh, had an interest in you know, understanding more stuff about their, you know, particular show finale to how they relate to other ones as well. It's interesting to me how TV has evolved over the decades. I'm in my mid-40s, so I'm still, uh, I'm old enough to remember the shows from the 70s when I start, and certainly shows predating that via uh, via repeats and syndication and so forth. And it's interesting that shows for the longest time, dramas, for example, didn't a lot of times have long-term story arcs as much but uh, almost television now and it seems to increase year by year it almost kind of is this continuing story almost tearing a page from soap operas and we see so many shows particularly dramas that have these overarching years-long story arcs yeah i think that's true um i think what we get now is uh with drama that's as opposed to you know when i was growing up and watching most hour drama shows you know they were very episodic you know they usually would tell a story within the you know in the course of an hour 
But now we kind of get this kind of combination of, um, you know, episodic and stuff that is more kind of serial, where uh, shows, you know, sitcoms and dramas would have these story arcs that would actually go over the course of the season. You know, like a show like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there was usually one really, really bad vampire or demon that she would eventually kill, usually at the end, uh, in the in the final episode of the season. Or even on sitcoms, where they would actually have um, story arcs, like Ross and Rachel on Friends, which actually lasted almost the entire, uh, the entire series. It also speaks to um, the change, certainly, in, you know, episodic or serial, speaks to how people are watching television now. Because certainly, you know, with the dawn of Netflix and, and things like that, people are used to binge-watching, so they expect to kind of have this following, continuing storyline all along. And I definitely think that influence shows, you know, certainly like Breaking Bad and, you know, uh, uh, certain other dramas as well that feel like you have to continue the storyline so that when you're watching it all as one text together, um, you know, it has that much more impact. Well, I I am really a TV nerd going way back. I remember the finale of The Carol Burnett Show. I must have been seven, eight, nine years old, something like that. I literally cried <laughs> during the finale. <laughs> I the finale. I was, I, I was so I was so sad uh, about Carol Burnett ending her show, and I was just a kid. But the thing is. Finales can be very emotional because we've brought these people uh, into our homes uh, many times for many, many years. Well, sure, especially before uh, VCRs. Um, you know, our lives kind of revolved around, you know, this is what right. we watched on Sunday, this is what we watched on uh, Saturday. So you kind of feel like a part of you is, uh, you know, is being sort of, you know, is being taken away from you because you spent your Saturday nights and Sunday nights watching, um, you know, watching certain shows and suddenly they're gone. And we never usually think about the fact a show is going to end. You know, it doesn't really something we're thinking about when we're enjoying a show and watching. But unfortunately, um, eventually they all do, and particularly in prime time. Now... And I want to get to some specifics and talk about some of these different finales. And, and again, we'll put a big spoiler alert. If we start talking about a show and you've not watched it, uh, you might want to flip forward a little bit in the podcast. We don't want to spoil it for you, but there will be probably spoilers galore in this particular episode of the show. But um, first, I want to talk briefly. What about shows that were ended prematurely? You know, for example, I'm a big fan of the current show, The Americans, which is on FX. And I've been reading their ratings, I think, are so-so, and it's a fantastic show it should be you know up right up there with shows like breaking bad and Mad Men. but for whatever reason i don't think it's reached that level i'm worried i'm going to get into the middle of it and then production will just stop i, I haven't heard that but i have that fear what have there been famous cases of shows that were fairly popular at least had a cult following and then just had a cold stop with no resolution in terms of, you know, shows that have had, like, a cold stop, generally, that would be something that would be, like, a sh more short-term show. Um, the long-term shows that we talk about in the book, certainly, some of them end sort of prematurely in the sense that viewership has gone down so dramatically that it was just time to resolve it, even though maybe the show creators or certainly leads in the show um, maybe weren't prepared for it. But um, something like Roseanne might be a really good example of that sort of, you know, often regarded as a show that had a disappointing ending, um, maybe because the ratings had slipped so much, they had to wrap it up and they felt like, you know, we got to do something big and splashy and different so that people tune in to watch it since they've stayed with us for so many years and have thus now... Uh, left us. But I think, uh, you know, one that uh, Stephen introduced me to uh, that I love is the, the very short-lived show called I Married Dora, 
mm-hmm. uh, where the show just ends and the cast just kind of turns and says, this is over, it's over, and they wave goodbye <laughs> to their audience. Um, it's kind of a meta moment. Uh, but sometimes when the rug gets pulled out from under you, you know, the best thing to do is have a, best, a good sense of humor about it, and that certainly was the case for that uh, short-lived sitcom. But Stephen, I don't know if you have any other... Yeah, I mean, there are, well, there are a few shows that sort of don't really have endings, like Deadwood on HBO. Yeah, and, that was uh, when I Part liked it. <laughs> I mean, those shows were, like, obviously a little more expensive. Yeah. So, uh, Pushing Daisies on ABC. And they're all, I mean, what they all have, have in common is they are sort of cult shows. Yeah, you hear rumblings that they're going to um, maybe do an ending. Uh, for it, you know, I've heard that a few times about um, about Deadwood because even though the ratings were not high, there's enough, maybe perhaps enough interest to do maybe a TV movie. You know, HBO has right. a lot of money, so yeah, um, and so that usually, was a fantastic show, fantastic yeah. show. Although, if you don't like vulgarity, not the show to watch, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> especially the Ian McShane character in that. Yeah, <laughs> it's rather rather salty. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, uh, so, yeah. Not for the kids. Uh, now, this kind of uh, power of the TV finale, the, one of the biggest cases is one of the first ones I can think of going back to the 1960s, The Fugitive. Can you talk about that show that may be out of some people's view and, and they've forgotten about it or maybe never heard of it? But that was a really big deal and a national happening. It was. And, um, you know, the entire series revolved around finding the identity of this one-armed man who may or may not have killed Richard Kimball's wife, and Richard Kimball was being accused of the crime and was sentenced to death and was on the run for four seasons. So everyone was waiting to find out who the um, identity of the one-armed man. It was sort of the, probably the really kind of the first major kind of cliffhanger in the TV series. And they did a very unusual thing because as most shows end in May, they actually delayed uh, the ending until August something I don't think they would ever do now. So people had to wait during the summer, and some people thought, of course this is before the Internet, uh, some people thought that they were never going to find out the mm-hmm. ending. And of course they, you know, they do find out. And what they did is I think they, showed, they were showing reruns, and even the shows started to run in syndication during the daytime. But that was the probably first where it seemed that there was like kind of a national interest in finding out who the identity of the one-armed man you know, it was in the newspaper, it was in the radio. Uh, they even announced it at ball games that night that were airing uh, around the same time. And they even, some uh, networks, even some affiliates, even ABC affiliates, uh, changed their scheduling a little bit to make sure that it was on and that people actually saw it. There was one town that even had a blackout during the huh. during the ending, during the last half hour. It sounds like something <laughs> out of a movie. And uh, the newspaper printed the next day, you know, what happened, because there, there would be no other way of finding out back then. And especially in the Internet age, but throughout the, the decades, I think one of the challenges, particularly if it's a highly rated show, how in the world do you keep the ending from leaking? What lengths have producers gone to to keep uh, the secret quiet until the airing of a, of a big finale? Well, in the case of Seinfeld, certainly, um, it was a very well-kept secret. Uh, Larry David has left the show in the seventh season, and he came back to his finale, so it was kind of all locked in with him, and despite a lot of, you know, projections of what would happen and make what would happen, um, it was one of those things where it was just, for, you know, within that realm. It was the only one to know. Um, even um, Julie Dreyfus said that, you know, when they read at the table read, 
there was, you know, surprise there. And certainly now uh, with shows, you know, that have very ambitious scopes in terms of what they can cover, something like uh, How I Met Your Mother, right, where the whole series is leading up to this point when we're going to meet the mother. It's sort of interesting that, you know, when you know how it's going to end, they still try and twist it. And it's one of those things where you can keep it under wraps, but because of Twitter and because of, you know, so much social media, there's so much posturing, there's so much speculation of what's going to happen that oftentimes fans aren't able to distinguish between, you know, is that was that real what they said that was going to happen or the producers promised that we would meet the mother at this point or whatever it may be. So, you know, there's certainly super fans keeping track of everything that's ever been said about a series in order to kind of get ahead of the producers in terms of how it's going to end. So that's certainly changed over the decades for sure. You mentioned a show there, Seinfeld. And uh, <laughs> I was a huge Seinfeld fan. It's great. It's on Hulu now. You can dip into it anytime you want. To. We're kind of introducing our teenage daughters to it. And it holds up and it's funny as ever. How can such a great show, many would argue the best comedy in TV history. I think uh, that's even though I, I skew to older shows uh, and I guess now it is an older show. But I, I think it's my number one favorite comedy of all time. How can such a great, great, well-written show with fantastic actors have such a lousy finale? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the show that everyone kind of jokes or calls itself a show about nothing, it really shouldn't have had a big finale. I mean, obviously they right. did for ratings, but you know, it was a show about people who basically didn't change at all for so many years and so many seasons. What's really interesting is that, um, you know, a lot of people cite the Seinfeld finale as sort of being so controversial and so upsetting to fans because here we have these characters that we love to follow who have these, you know, petty, dramatic things that happen. And then suddenly by putting them on trial, you're making us judge them for their behavior. And meanwhile, we love to kind of vicariously live through them and their funny quirks and, you know, what bothers them. And, you know, now we're at this moment where we have to sort of judge them for what they've done all along. And that feels wrong to us. So I think that was the source of a lot of people's disappointment with it. But if you really think about it, you know, the Seinfeld finale, it was up against a very, you know, difficult hurdle in terms of, you know, surprising and enchanting the audiences in the same way that it had done for so many years. Because the whole point of the show is it always surprised you. It always was something different. You didn't know what was going to happen from week to week. And in a way, the finale succeeds uh, in that, however disappointing it, it may be. But I think, you know, in keeping uh, with the show's tone, I think what Stephen says is absolutely right. It's not a show that sort of needed this splashy, big finale. You know, we would have been okay just knowing that they kept living on their lives with their, you know, crazy antics happening every day. But, you know, given the enormous ratings and that Seinfeld decided, you know, six months previous that he was going to end the show, you can't blame NBC for going for that big, splashy finale or putting the pressure on them to, you know, design something that would inspire national conversation, which they did. So, you know, I think maybe in hindsight, uh, we can cushion the blow with, you know, being able to rewatch everything over and over again and maybe forgetting a little bit of the, the end, <laughs> if that helped. Have the principals ever made any comments as to, hey, we would like another whack at that, or are they, they're pretty happy with it? Well, I think they did sort of get a chance to have another whack at it when they reunited on Cobra and Enthusiasm in 2009. Um, so they kind of were brought back for a fictional Seinfeld reunion. And in a way, I think that was a kind of a cathartic experience for 
them and for, you know, the fans to sort of see, okay, well, where are they now? Um, and, you know, can we redo, can we relive uh, that time and sort of project what we want to happen to these characters to happen? Um, but I think in, largely, you know, I think Jerry Seinfeld and certainly Julie Louis-Dreyfus have found you know, ample success after Seinfeld, and they're very happy to have been part of that, but they're charging forward. I don't think there's a reunion in sight. Now, on the flip side, there's one particular finale in terms of comedies uh, uh, that I think is the most clever ever. And I'm not going to say which one it is. Uh, I want to see if you think the same thing that I do. But there is one very clever ending to a classic TV show uh, of a star who had multiple successful TV series uh, that I thought was particularly good. Uh, do you know the one I'm thinking of? Comedy? As in a half hour sitcom. As in a half hour sitcom. What about Newhart? Oh, yeah. Of course. (laughs) Yes, that was probably the most unexpected thing and, yeah, and definitely clever. Uh, And it really kind of spoke to the fans, particularly Newhart fans, who were familiar with his other show. Um, Nobody really knew about it. They were able to really keep that pretty much um, under wraps. You know, Suzanne Plachette made a reappearance (laughs) playing uh, Emily Hartley, uh, the wife, Newhart's wife from the first series. And they literally kind of uh, darkened part of the stage, and she sort of just sort of snuck out uh, at the very, very ending during the taping and got into bed. You hear some giggling in the beginning, supposedly because people kind of recognize the set of their bedroom, but people were pretty shocked when um, you know he woke up and started talking, and then we find out Suzanne Plachette was uh, lying right there next to him. Yeah, I remember something along the lines of, I had the craziest dream. There was yeah. this this caretaker that didn't do anything, and then <laughs> right. there's these brothers. She describes the whole premise of the show, and she, and she was like, uh, "Oh, please, go back, go back to, to sleep, sleep, Bob." And they actually <laughs> and they actually recreated that again on Saturday Night Live when he hosted the show. Where at the right. very end of hosting, you know, he wakes up and said he had a dream he hosted Saturday Night Live, and Emily basically says, "Is that show still on?" Uh, <laughs> they I got a lot of mileage out of that. Yeah, it was yeah. a good gag. Yes. Hey, it was worth repeating. I think it's one of those rare times when it's all a dream is uh, something that fans enjoy. Yeah, <laughs> well, the, sure. the thing about that, I think they were also making fun around that time. Dallas had the famous season where Bobby yeah. died or whatever, and exactly. then the ratings right. went down, and then all of a sudden the next season they find him in the shower because we got to revive the ratings. How can we work this? Ah, right. it was all, <laughs> it was the all a dream. Season. Yeah, the entire season was yeah. a dream. Now, and both of you can answer us individually. What's your favorite? finale of all the different programs you've been fans of and as uh, academes and studying this field seriously uh which show do you think was both the most enjoyable and also struck just the right tone and and, and i'll let you go in any order you want we might say the same thing <laughs> i would say probably the sopranos which might be surprising to some people because it sort of has a non-ending but in terms of sort of fa- staying faithful like the tone um, of the series because basically I think people were expecting something to happen like Tony Soprano getting killed and you know I think David Chase did something very smart with basically ended with you know the shot of the four family members you know sitting there in a diner nobody gets uh, well actually three and very very end you hear the door opening because Meadow has come in and everybody looks up and that's the ending and, uh, you know, I think people thought their cable went out because they cut the dark, you know, cut the right. black. And, you know, that makes people nervous. In fact, I thought ours went out. 
And, um, you know, people had probably the most severe <laughs> and extreme reactions to it. David Chase was smartly out of the country at the time, so he was able to kind of stay away from the press. And people have written all these law and there's you know, some stuff that's been written about it and trying to explain what it all means and there's all the symbolism. And David Chase actually, um, I think it was last year or the year before, came out and wrote something for the Director's Guild magazine where basically he kind of explained what he was thinking when he was doing this and says basically that there is no implication, there's no symbolism, there wasn't really anything uh, there. He just wanted to end it sort of with the family. I'm going to take a little bit of a turn from Stephen's uh, non-ending to what I think is the like greatest ending because it's the ultimate ending is uh, Six Feet Under. Uh, because, you know, the premise of the show is that, you know, we're following these characters who are uh, undertakers and, you know, they're surrounded by death. And the only way the show really could end was showing us how each one of the characters ultimately dies. Um, and I thought it was a really fascinating move, sort of, you know, and this idea uh, that a show entirely about death is really actually about, about following the trajectory of these people's lives and ultimately what happens to them before they die, you know? So I thought it was really clever that they decided to go with letting every single character find its end. Um, and it was very satisfying. Um, and even in conjunction with that, I thought it was great that HBO uh, posted uh, obituaries for each one of the characters. Yeah. So even though they show you their last moments, these obituaries that they posted online, let fans read what happened all in between. Yeah, um, so I think it's in, in terms of the most final closure conclusion, uh, I would give that one to six feet under. And I have to say something about um, The Sopranos or Sopranos. I, I, I actually respectfully disagree. It drove me nuts. I was one of those people that drove me. I remember my, my – and we both <laughs> thought that my wife and I were big fans. And uh, it's interesting about that program because I really think – and uh, you guys are uh, expert on this. I'm not. But it really kind of kicked off the era of these extremely high-quality, cinematic-quality television programs that I think in, in many ways have outstripped uh, motion pictures. I think that's true. I mean, it's, you know, it's an example of what is usually called uh, quality television, which is usually uh, television that is extremely well-written. It's very literate. And um, even, you know, in the case of actually Six Feet Under and um, The Sopranos, uh, it's, there's something very cinematic about it. So right. when you sat down and watch it, it's almost like you're watching a movie for um, an hour. And it's good to see that. I mean, uh, you know, quality television kind of dates back to really the 80s with, um, you know, shows like St. Elsewhere and, you know, these shows that had like kind of large ensembles and so on. And I think HBO was really able to sort of take it up a notch. And I think that we're now seeing that on Hulu and other streaming services where we're getting these, um, you know, these sort of terrific uh, TV series. Yeah, it is a real treat. I have to believe, I mean, I know Chase says that there's no answer. It's, I think he's saying there's no answer. To me, it's obvious he's dead. <laughs> I mean, okay. unfortunately, the, unfortunately, the actor, James Gandolfini, yeah. passed, uh, I think, about three years ago. And that's a very sad thing because you always had in the back of your mind, might there be a movie? Might there be a movie? Right. Of course, no one could fill in his shoes. He was such an iconic actor in that, that particular role. Um, I wanted to look at other day parts and other parts uh, of uh, the, the shows. And one of the iconic farewells for a uh, talk show person. I think has to be uh, Johnny Carson. In fact, I have that one on DVD. I've always been a big Carson fan. A very kind of poignant way to uh, to step yeah. away from uh, you know thirty years of being in America's bedrooms. 
Yeah, the word I would always use for that ending is classy. <laughs> because, um, you know, the night before he had Bette Miller and Robin Williams on, who were like two of his favorite performers. And then instead of doing the big, you know, three-hour goodbye on primetime, which they wanted him to do, he said he wanted to sort of end the show sort of the way that it started. So it was this, it's this very sort of, first of all, kind of sentimental particularly for Johnny Carson. Um, you know, it's probably the most warm and fuzzy we ever <laughs> we ever see him. And there's something so kind of emotional, you know, about it, because I really felt when I was watching it that he really was kind of saying goodbye to, you know, his audience. And it didn't go for the usual, you know, it wasn't trying to be flashy. It wasn't trying to, you know, bring all these stars out. I mean, he sort of did that over the course you know, had a real lot of people back over the course of the, the months up to it. But it was really kind of a, it's, it, it really should be sort of held as kind of a model for the way to actually end, um, you know, a, particularly a late night talk show. And it's interesting because I remember he said something along the lines, if you ever welcome me uh, back into your homes again for other things, I hope yeah. you'll be as gracious. But the thing is, it really, I don't believe he ever had another speaking part on another program, I know he did some uh, appearances on Letterman Little Walk-Ins yeah, and a skit, that's the only thing but that's I know it. Of. Yeah, that's it. And it was one of those things that was sad on one hand. We had enjoyed him for so long, but he didn't have this long multi-decade goodbye like maybe somebody no. like Bob Hope who ran it into the ground, unfortunately. I mean, what's amazing is you have to think this guy, if you were a loyal viewer of The Tonight Show, you spent a lot of time with him. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes more than people in our family or anything. If you right. sat and watched him every night, you know, it was an hour an evening. It even started as 90 minutes. So you really felt like someone was, you know, I think kind of saying goodbye to you. And it is interesting, and you guys have an interesting perch with which to uh, identify this, but people really do get a family feeling about these actors and talk show hosts and people that uh, – present these programs to us because it is such a large part of our lives. Yeah, I think that is definitely true. I, like Howard Holly said, has to say, but, you know, it, 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 it's definitely true because, um, you know, you sort of start to think of the show as, uh, and Holly and I have talked about this, you start to think of the show as this is my show. You know, it's right. like you feel like you own the show in, in essence. So, you know, how are they going to end my show? Uh, so people have a bit of ownership about it, which is usually why they have a lot to say. Um, yeah, like the finale. Yeah, I think people write the ending in their head. You know, you have to think about people who were fans of Friends. In their mind, you know, Ross and Rachel had to be together in the end. And although, you know, the creators of the show brilliantly, you know, play that out over the course of, of the seasons of the show, you know, they have that in mind, too. They know that that's what the fans want. And the whole idea of it being your show, I mean, it's it's coming into your home, you're watching it with your family, or maybe you're watching it, you know, alone in a very personal way, you know, it makes sense that you have these expectations and you hope that they're met. But, you know, at the same time, like, you know, you have to hand over some level of trust to the creators who have, you know, taking you on this journey all along. So, so certainly, yeah, there's a personal connection to, I would say, probably every single show <laughs> that we outline here in the book. Well, you know, another thing that's interesting to me, not only the emotion from the audience, but it has to be exceptionally emotional for the crews and the actors who create these shows. Because if you look at these iconic shows, Seinfeld, Mary Tyler Moore, you know, the list goes on and on. You have to know in the back of their mind, most of the people who work on these shows, the really big ones. 
have to know this is the end of probably the most substantial thing I'm ever going to do professionally. I mean, for example, right. you look at somebody like Mary Tyler Moore, who certainly went on to act on other TV shows that didn't do as well. And of course, she was an ordinary people, but she never had the big TV series like this. Seinfeld, I mean, the guy's doing comedians uh, in cars with coffee, and I'm sure that's a lot of fun, and he's counting his millions. But professionally, he's never done anything to touch it. Not maybe he doesn't want to. But the point is there has to be a certain sadness, particularly when you have these mega hits where the actors know and the crew knows this is the biggest thing I'm going to ever do. And they might be 30 or 40 years old. they got a lot of life to live. Yeah, I definitely think that was the case with a lot of shows. Um, and certainly, you know, uh, these younger actors try and, you know, crossover into movies or whatever it may be. Probably the best example would be, you know, Aaron Paul and Breaking Bad. Yeah. You know, here he is, he's playing, you know, this character that is instantly iconic and he will forever be associated with it. But I think, you know, he's taking a, a good route in the sense of, you know, embracing it. Um, when you see fans and when you're you're tweeting out things about, you know, what, what the character will be doing now, you know, there's this whole platform now that allows these actors to have, you know, a direct connection to their fans and reach out to them and communicate with them. They don't just kind of float off into the distance anymore, uh, maybe as they would have or they could have in the past. You know, they have this visibility that's constant. So, you know, uh, I think a, a, a good example of somebody who um, went on beyond something that was career-defining to, you know, propel himself beyond that is definitely Steve Carell in the office. Oh, sure. Here he was. He... He took over the reins for a British show that was really popular. He makes it his own. He becomes associated with uh, the show, that brand of comedy, all that. And now it's an important footnote in his career, but he certainly has to tell himself beyond that. So I do think it's possible. But, you know, uh, it, it certainly is something that he will always look back and be Michael Scott to a large portion of the viewing audience. But he he's done some uh, amazing uh, dramatic work with uh, Foxcatcher and the movie that was just a big short, I think it was, just recently out. Right. So he's really a multi-talented guy, more than a one-trick yeah. pony by all means. One thing I wanted to talk about briefly, and this goes beyond just finales, but the huge shares – uh, that these programs used to get in, say, the well, the Fugitive in the 60s, MASH in the 70s, and up uh, up through the 80s, even with a non-finale show, Who Shot JR? Uh, just can you speak to uh, the fragmentation of the marketplace and uh, how some of these iconic shows were re- able to pull down these huge shares when basically people had three networks to choose from and maybe four or five channels in their particular market, uh, the networks, PBS and the independent or two before cable. Uh, talk about the differences there. Well, this is something I talk to my students a lot. Um, and usually I feel very old when I say me too. <laughs> Once upon a time, there were three channels. Back know? in my day, and we then in New York, there was channel nine, 11 and 13, which was PBS. And uh, because there were fewer channels, there were more people tuning in. And um, usually shows, you know, shows did air and get canceled. Uh, Usually it didn't happen as quick back then uh, because they were ordering more episodes usually uh, initially, you know, in the beginning. But these shows had huge audiences, even shows that were not so popular. (laughs) Uh, still, it, the the size of the audience compared to what is considered now to be such a big, you know, audience. What's considered big now is like I think last night, like NCIS was on and it got 12 million. Well, that's a lot in this market, yeah. mostly because there are so many other options to watch, and it's it just continues. It's not just now, of course, commercial broadcast TV, but there's you know commercial cable.
cable and there's pay cable. And of course, now there's streaming. And the thing about streaming is we don't know how many people are watching. Yeah. Uh, you know, there really isn't anything way to measure except of subscription rates. And I mean, Netflix has been rather reticent about even kind of revealing. But we do know that some shows obviously are popular. Uh, you know, a show like Orange is the New Black. I think awards in getting Emmy nominations definitely would help a show that is, uh, mm-hmm. that is streaming. But, you know, there's just so many options that it's, you know, it's almost as if the ratings sort of somehow have to be kind of uh, reconfigured in, in thinking yeah. about, you yeah. know, what is actually the better, the best system to sort of measure what it is that people are watching. And also because, I mean, they sort of introduced the whole idea about, um, you know, ratings now, they consider the fact if you put it on your DVR, if you're watching it right. in the next few days or within a week, I think that is sort of added to the mix. I think they had to do that because otherwise ratings would be <laughs> pretty dismal, you know, by comparison. Yeah, it's interesting because last year I had a chance to interview Don Most of Happy Days fame, even, of course, the iconic Ralph Mouth. And he was talking about the kind of numbers, and I think that was kind of the last generation of shows that had this, or maybe the next to last generation of shows. But the shares that they would get and the amount of people that would tune in in the mid-70s, say, to, to see the latest exploits of Fonzie and Richie, just would, you know, dwarf anything now. <laughs> right. Exactly. It was kind of this shared electronic hearth. Well, I've got to say, if anybody out there enjoys the electronic hearth, otherwise known as television, you must pick up this book. This is fantastic. I just love this kind of stuff. And uh, really, it's a great book, and I've enjoyed uh, delving into it. Some, uh, Admittedly, some places I've skipped chapters because there's shows I haven't seen. I'm like, oh, I can't read that one. <laughs> but I've really enjoyed well, you going. you have to revisit. Yeah, that's right. And it reminds me of some shows I need to catch up on because of the beauty of streaming and so forth. Stephen and Holly, where can people find this book? Because I highly recommend it. Um, you can purchase it on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble seems to have it. Every time one of us goes to the Barnes & Noble, we take a picture and say, there's yeah. a <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, it's well worth, uh, well worth reading, and I highly recommend it. Uh, Stephen Tropiano and Holly Van Buren, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. This has been fun. Thank you. The book is TV Finales, FAQ, all that's left to know about the endings of your favorite TV shows. Do pick it up, and we'll have links at the website as well. We thank you for tuning in and as they say stay tuned we'll talk to you next time on tv you grew up with thanks